I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome Managing Editor of Mississippi Today, Kaylee Skinner, to our program. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kaylee. Thank you, Alexander. I'm so glad to be here. Kaylee, can you give us a, an overview of what is emerging as a national case attempt to reverse Roe v. Wade? It emanates from a case in Mississippi, and I was hoping you could give our listeners a specific lens on that from the ground up. Sure. So um, obviously, it's huge news that dropped yesterday that the United States Supreme Court is going to review Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. And that was a law that passed in 2018 out of the state legislature, um, which would prevent abortions after 15 weeks. Um, and obviously, that that challenges the Roe v. Wade question of pre-viability. And so this is huge news because this is the first time since since I think 1973, that the United States Supreme Court is going to take on a pre-viability ban. And this could obviously affect whether abortion nationwide is going to be restricted in some way or or Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned altogether. Um, And it started, it's very interesting because when lawmakers pass that bill, we we have a Republican supermajority in the legislature. Um, They said at the time, you know, we hope that this can be something that challenges Roe v. Wade. And now here we are years down the road and our abortion bill out of all the other states that were passing similar restrictions is um, the one being considered by the highest court in the nation. And what is the attitude towards reproductive rights and health in Mississippi at this juncture? So this is actually not the most restrictive ban that the legislature has passed. They've also passed a six-week abortion ban but that was struck down by lower courts. Um, and that, of course, they called a heartbeat bill, which would just mean you can't. I mean, some women don't even know that they're pregnant by six weeks. So they were effectively trying to limit abortion um, in the state by and large. And there actually only is one clinic that offers abortions, um, and that is in Jackson in the state capitol. And if you go by this building, it's a pink building. It's, it's pretty noticeable. There are protesters out there like dang and night and they they have microphones and they just kind of like are shouting at people and harassing people that are like going to local businesses, just like very unfriendly to the idea of women undergoing this procedure. And when we had um, any kind of hearing about these laws, these people will show up and, and protest and kind of try to agitate. So it's not very easy or accessible for women to get um, an abortion here because like I said, there's one clinic and you know, it's in Jackson. There are some people who live hours away. If you, I mean, it just means you have to save up money and get a hotel and have to spend the night. So um, not the friendliest landscape for reproductive justice if, if you talk to advocates who um, want to expand that right. How would you say that the climate towards issues of racial and economic justice has changed at all in the state since the protest movement of last summer galvanized action around the country, social protest as well as legislative action. What has been the material effect, if any, uh, legislatively or culturally on the state? 
So just like the rest of the country, we saw action happening um, after George Floyd was killed by police. Um, on, I think, June 6th, which was not that long after he was murdered, um, we had the largest civil rights demonstration since the 1960s in the state capitol. Um, it was a Black Lives Matter protest, and it was organized by by young people, which was really fascinating. I mean, I'm talking teenagers, college students, and I want to say 3,000 people showed up. Um, all were masked. They were all um, just there to kind of unite. And one of their demands was that Mississippi change its state flag, which since 1894 had featured the Confederate battle emblem. And it's at that point was the last state in the country to do so. Um, and as a result of that protest on June 6th, um, lawmakers listened and kind of like were thinking about whether there was a way to do that. Um, there was opposition because uh, it, in 2000 or 20-ish years prior, that issue had gone to the ballot and voters decided not to change the state flag. And so Republicans used that as their reasoning for not doing it themselves through the legislature. Their, their reasoning was, well, the people decided and they didn't want to change it. But I think because of what happened um, last summer with all the talk about social justice and our protest, um, you started to see a huge shift and businesses started coming out. The NCAA said, if you don't change this flag, we're going to ban um, conference championships, Walmart, like giant companies started saying, if you don't change this, we're, there will be consequences. And so by the end of the month, um, we actually saw lawmakers take the step themselves to change the state flag. And that is just, it's just a huge deal because like I said, that flag had flown since 1894. Um, and it's very divisive, obviously. Um, it means different things to different people. The people who were wanting the flag to stay, said it represented heritage. Um, but Mississippi is the blackest state in the country. Uh, I think 38% of the population are African-American. So for a lot of people, that flag did not represent heritage. It was it was hatred and hurtful. So we saw the flag come down at the end of June. And now uh, we have a new state flag, which was approved by voters uh, in November uh, on election day. And it, it features a magnolia leaf. When you Think of the uh, national perception of a state that is, as we understand it from national historians and media, um, deeply evangelical and evangelical in the right leaning, um, you know, towards a revisitation of earlier politics, if you want to call it the Jim Crow era, there, there has been an increasing view of the Republican Party in Southern states as embracing the new Jim Crow. And as the editor of the leading nonprofit news outlet in the state, can you tell our listeners if that's accurate? So I would say it is accurate to say that Mississippi is a conservative state. I mean, most uh, we voted overwhelmingly for Trump um, in the election, and we did in the in 2016. But um, our, our state legislature also is a Republican supermajority, as I mentioned earlier. Um, all of our statewide elected officials are Republicans. Only one of them is a woman, I believe. Um, so I would say, yes, Mississippi is a conservative state, but, um, 
the National Democratic Party, I think we saw what happened in Georgia, um, has started to recognize that if they invest some money in these red states, that maybe we can start to see a shift. Um, so very recently, actually, the National Party announced that they're going to be investing some money into the Mississippi's Democratic Party, which has been criticized for kind of being disorganized or um, not as effective as it could be. We saw in the Senate race uh, last November, there was an African-American candidate, Mike Espy, who actually outraised his opponent, Cindy Hyde-Smith, um, by and large. I think he, he got like $16 million, but it came so late in the race that he says that he wasn't really able to to do as much as he could have with it. So I think Republicans have a a strong hold on the state, but people are trying to change that. Beyond Republican or Democrat, is there the fear that there is a political movement to undermine the progress that our nation has seen in terms of racial justice and reconciliation? And if there is that fear, how acute is it? Hmm. I think that that really depends on who you ask. I think I think a lot of people, when you think about Mississippi, you think of, I don't know, rednecks or, or racists who are trying to hold people back and stay in the South, in the old South, whatever that means. Um, but I think if you look back to last summer, you can see that that things can change. I mean, that was quite literally a symbol of the Confederacy that in the year 2020 was what we chose to represent ourselves as a state. Um, and after a lot of conversation and, and controversy, it, it came down. So I think in some ways, Mississippi is moving forward. But then when you look at, I don't know, the policies that are being passed or the way people vote, I kind of keep leaning back to people being pretty, pretty conservative. And um, like you said, religion is, this is a very religious state. In terms of public education and public services generally, what would you say has changed in Mississippi over the last decade and what has remained constant uh, in terms of the condition of public health and public education in the state? So Mississippi gets a rep as being at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to public education. Uh, I think you could say that 10 years ago. And I think a change we've seen is that the state has put an emphasis on literacy. And so there is now a test that third graders have to take um, before they can move up to the fourth grade uh, in reading. And um, this is a similar kind of exam for kindergartners. And what we're seeing is um, that is improving. Like Mississippi, I can't say that we're like number one in the nation, but when, it, that when we're looking at like a national exam, uh, Mississippi was one of the only states to improve in reading. And so if you talk to state officials, that's that's what they love to say um, and point out is that we are making improvements. But I think the pandemic has shown that we still have a lot of work to do. Mississippi is a very rural state. And so uh, what that means is, you know, when schools shut down, some kids literally did not have internet access. They did not have computers. We're also a very poor state. So, you know, access to laptops and affording Wi-Fi, that was a huge barrier. And so Kids have been going to class, I'm using air quotes here, um, in McDonald's parking lots just so they could get free Wi-Fi. And districts have having, are having to um, use their federal money that they got to buy laptops to provide to kids. Um, and we're also 
because of the pandemic, you know, a lot of districts chose to go virtual, but some districts in Mississippi were like, we literally cannot do that because none of our kids could access like the classes that we're teaching because they live so far out that the broadband like doesn't, doesn't work very well. So we found that some districts have had to like choose a way that they're going to offer class in the pandemic because of these barriers. So I think the state department of education is aware of all this and is trying really hard to fix this, but it's still a huge problem. In terms of the pandemic fallout, do you think that the ultimate lessons of the pandemic in Mississippi will be experienced differently than other parts of the country? Um, And do you anticipate that vaccine hesitancy uh, or the denial of vaccine safety or efficacy will inhibit a real recovery in the state? Well, economically, it's an interesting thing to look at because when uh, we first had everything shut down, I think last March, um, the governor did shut down the state. But, um, you know, come June, when other states were continuing their lockdowns or even tightening restrictions, our governor started to ease that. And so um, businesses were allowed to remain open and, and operate at 50% capacity. Um, he allowed schools to reopen in person if they if they wanted to. And so I think what I found uh, through our, like our reporting and, and kind of talking to people is, yes, there are people that are taking it very seriously and getting vaccinated. But if you look at the data, we are one of the least vaccinated states in the country right now. Um, we, we often have a surplus. If you go to the state scheduling website, you can find an appointment. Um, and that, that was not true when the vaccines were first made available. Um, and so, um, now if you were to come to Mississippi, there are, there are no restrictions like restaurants can be open, um, full capacity. You can businesses, same thing. And, and so you'll find even before the CDC recently, um, said that where stop wearing masks. I mean, depending on where you go, some people just didn't wear them anyway. Um, and I think you could find that more in in rural areas, but it was just confusing, I think, for some cities and, and towns when the governor was saying, okay, well, this is how we're going to do it. But the mayors wanted maybe tighter restrictions, so they would have their own rules that were a little more restrictive than like what the governor was saying. So I don't know. I think... Some business owners would say that they've been happy um, to be able to continue to operate. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we're just not a very vaccinated state right now. While Mississippi is considered a red state, a conservative state, a Trump state, if you will, you know, there, there, it's always interesting to remember that when we're talking about red states and blue states. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people um, at a minimum, if you just look at the party affiliations or who would vote for SB, hundreds of thousands of people, um, many in you know majority Republican neighborhoods and cities too, that, that, that disagree that, that, you know, so while we consider this, this idea of a red state um, or a blue state, I think we often forget that these are not 
political armies. Um, these are people, and there are a lot of people from all political dispositions who reside there. And I don't know if that's a takeaway you wish um, folks outside of the state would be more cognizant of, um, because Again, at the end of the day, when you look at the election results in states, whether it's Mississippi or Missouri, that have been trending increasingly Republican, there are still hundreds of thousands of people uh, who aren't represented in that red state. Um, you know, just as, of course, there were millions of people not represented in the policies of the Trump administration, in fact, the majority. But in, in, in reality, um, red state implies the kind of supermajority or kind of a universal dictum um, that's not true, right? Right. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think because we are a state that has voted for Trump, that people think of Mississippi as this just very Republican place where you're going to go and they're just going to be a whole bunch of people flying Trump flags. And um, I don't know, just they have an idea of what the state looks like. And that of course is not true. Even within people who identify as Republicans. I mean, we even, we published an essay on our site from um, white women who leading up to election day told us, you know, I have voted Republican my entire life, but watching the way the president has handled the coronavirus and down to our like Senator race, um, what Cindy, Senator Cindy Hyde Smith has said and done is making me vote for the Democrat, not because I like him, but because I just cannot endorse what the Republican party is doing right now. So there is complexity in, um, you know, how people choose to cast their vote. We are not a monolith. Um, and I think do, people do forget that. And do you think that, in some ways, just like in Massachusetts, where there's a Republican governor and there is actually cooperation among Democrats and Republicans, do you feel as though your legislature the, you know, the, in the state, um, even though it is largely comprised of, of Republicans or conservatives, it, it in the way that it governs or operates, it is cognizant of that fact as well. So I think actually that the legislature does kind of govern with an iron fist when it comes to Republicans. Um, all the key chairmen are Republican men. Um, obviously the speaker of the house and the Lieutenant governor are both Republicans and Democrats are often shut out of the process, often quite literally shut out of the room. Um, so sometimes there is, I'm not just, I don't want to say that there is no collaboration at all, but I will say that, that generally speaking, I think if, if there's a Republican agenda, it's going to sail through and Democrats often have trouble getting bills passed or um, like getting full support on an issue. Final question. We saw a chilling effect on journalism and the way in which the Trump message um, specifically targeted uh, journalists. Um, what has you been your experience running a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to fact um, in, in 
a climate um, in America that is like nothing we've ever seen when it comes to an entire political party making one of its planks in these recent two election cycles, at least in 2016 through the present, um, very potent anti-press demagoguery. Um, and, and that's not to say in this Republic, we've had a dearth of that commentary, but we haven't had an entire political party representing millions of Americans um, unleash a barrage of assaults on uh, the free press. And so if you were to assess the current state of the free press in Mississippi and the perceptions of journalism in Mississippi, what, what would you say, Kaylee? So it's been interesting because Mississippi Today actually launched in 2016, which was right when that term fake news came about. So we've never existed in a world where there was not this newfound distrust of the press. And I think that has definitely been true for our experience with our journalists and that uh, since I mentioned earlier, all of our elected officials are Republican. Um, that means, and if our goal as a news organization is to hold elected officials accountable, that naturally means that sometimes we're going to publish things that those elected officials don't like. And often we see uh, when an article publishes that they're not fond of, instead of saying, you know, I don't agree with this, what their answer is, is, you know, Mississippi today is a liberal rag and you guys shouldn't trust them and it's fake news. Like they attack what we are and not what we've written. Um, the governor recently, I think, actually just went on a national news station and, and called us a liberal rag. So we do often find it can be combative and sometimes they will ignore us outright. But um, as we have grown uh, and our presence has become um, more, I don't know what you would say, um, we're not going anywhere. And I think they're starting to realize that um, we do have relationships with with public officials and, and Republicans who Maybe don't love the media, but I think they realize that um, they kind of have to talk to us. So we are, I guess it's an evolving relationship, but oftentimes is very prickly. Kaylee Skinner, Managing Editor of Mississippi Today. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me.